Hi everyone and welcome to the Substantial Upgrades podcast. This is going to be the first episode of an awfully long series of episodes that is dedicated to the upcoming Olympics, which I quite imaginatively decided to call Olympics Explained, because that's what we all try to do during the course of these episodes. The idea here is to look at all of the Olympic sports, but obviously some of them are much less known than others. Therefore, where I know that as, as an Olympic sport is not well known by the general public, I will go more in details on the rules of the sports, uh, what to look for when watching the Olympics in that particular sport, whereas for more famous sports like uh, football or basketball, like I'm not going to explain to you the rules of football or basketball. Um, but then in those instances, we're going to focus on some of the peculiarities of those tournaments in the Olympics and uh, things like uh, how the competition format works, um, how the qualification process works in terms of how many athletes uh, each sport is allocated, how the bids are distributed per country, and things like that. And probably as we get closer to the Olympics, the idea is to focus now more on sports where we already know most of the field athletes that have qualified. Whereas like when we go closer to the Olympics, like uh, sports like athletics, swimming, where mm, we have a better idea as the season progresses on what to expect in Tokyo, then for those sports, we can also focus on what I expect to be the main storylines. Obviously, we cannot cover that event by event, but an idea of who could be the main protagonist in those sports and like what countries can do well, what countries will underperform, etc. And then like one week or so before the Olympics, I will publish like a detailed report, event by event with predictions, uh, forecasts, percentages, probabilities that I assigned of different athletes winning medals in those um, events and then aggregation of those results in a projected medal table like this survey study that I do for every Olympics but this podcast are not like looking at the event event by event but it's more like um, a guide to someone that maybe doesn't follow the sports throughout the years but uh, likes to watch the Olympics and maybe in my experience, um, I know Americans don't like NBC coverage because they focus on few sports and they send interviews to the athletes instead of live events and very American-centric. So that's quite bad and people don't get really into the sports. It's the moment for the sports to shine, to just show them. And many broadcasters around the world don't do a good job of it. Uh, for example, BBC, which is praised by most, I don't think they do a good job either, to be honest. Um, they also like tend to show pre-recorded interviews or uh, events that are not live instead of live events. And obviously, as any national broadcast, they tend to focus on their athletes, which makes sense. And indeed, I hope that this year in Europe is going to be the first Summer Olympics where Eurosport has all the rights. And I think that is going to be a, a very good coverage because in general, they just show the events. <laughs> And then there's no one single national focus. So you can watch all the events with, uh, you know, commentators that more or less know what they're talking about. Uh, whereas like the national broadcasters like uh, ZDF, BBC, Rai, 
they will focus on their national athletes. And that's another type of coverage. I think we need both. And, you know, the average consumer uh, that might be interested in the Olympics need both to really grasp what's going on. So, yeah, the reason for this podcast, uh, this, speci- this special episode, is also to kind of introduce you to those sports so that um, when it comes Olympics time, uh, you know what to look for and you don't need to rely on those uh, commentators or broadcasters that at least 80% of the time have no idea what they're talking about because they really don't follow the sport throughout the year. I mean, of course, I'm not talking about big, like big famous sports like uh, swimming, athletics, or gymnastics, where, you know, they are, they are like a bit more um, qualified to comment. But um, on other smaller type of sports, I... I often go and like, oh boy, what? Why is this guy's been paid to do a terrible job like this? And again, it's not just the problem of a single country. Growing up, I thought it was a problem like uh, just uh, related to Italy. But uh, now that I look at uh, the coverage they have in other countries, it's pretty bad overall. So I hope like I could give you a better idea how to watch any every single sport uh, or just the one that you're interested in, and maybe you can select the sports that may, you think you might like more through those uh, episodes. So that's what I'm trying to achieve here. So the way it's going to work, I think I'm uh, going to give you an idea of the history of the sport, um, how it is structured in terms of federation, uh, whether it has a long Olympic history, a short one, and now it, it evolved throughout the Olympics. And then, as I said, for minor sports, I'm going to describe how the sport actually works. And then for all of the sports, I'm going to describe the competition format, maybe even give him some opinions, whether I like it or not, or where to focus your attention during the event, because some events last an hour and some events last the entire two weeks. And then we're going to talk about the qualification process, which at times is very complicated. And here it's going to be tricky to balance the need to explain what is a quite intricate system and not to be too pedantic about it, because it's really complicated in some some cases. So I'll try to strike a balance just to give an idea of how the qualification process works, but also, depending on the sport, in some cases, the qualification process is almost finished or entirely finished. In others, it's still ongoing, and in others, like it will be over just a few weeks before the Olympics. So it varies a lot from sport to sport. And then we're going to talk about the Tokyo Olympics in particular, the venues, uh, the events are going to be um, located, and also in terms of calendar, when to expect the biggest events in the sport, which part of the week, the first or the second week, those kind of things. And then just an overview on historically, but also right now, what are the traditionally stronger countries? Maybe we won't focus on athletes on most sports because it's a bit too much <laughs> in detail, as I said. I'm going to publish like something different for that. But I think you give an overview on what countries are good at some sports and bad at others is also helpful because like if you're obviously a supporter of that country, uh, you might be following that sport with more interest. And maybe you don't know that they're that good or maybe you don't think they're that good, but uh, I can tell you that they've improved in the past four years, for example, and then you can invest it more in that particular sport. Now, oh, the order on which I'm going to follow is a bit difficult to establish. I thought that going, you know, simply alphabetically, so not to 
make any discrimination among sports would make sense. However, like if you go um, alphabetically, we have like aquatics. If you go by federations of FINA, aquatics means diving, swimming, synchronized swimming, and water polo. But most of those qualification processes are not over. And as I said, some of the sports are quite well known. So there's no point to me to go into the rules and I want to keep it for last. Then like the second is archery and the third is athletics. And athletics is like swimming. They are the two, the king and the queen of the Olympics. And I want to keep them for last. So we're going to go through a modified <laughs> alphabetical version, which leaves archery in first place. And that's where we're going to start today. Let's start talking about archery then. You don't need an anthropologist probably to tell you how this human activity came to be, but what we're interested in is when archery started to be a pastime or a recreation rather than something people needed to do to go to war simply to hunt wild animals. Kind of become a pastime in the British elite in the 18th century already, However, it was seen as a very aristocratic activity, quite elitist for like closed societies. Therefore, it did not captivate much the general public. Therefore, only in the 1840s, uh, the sports became more widespread in the middle class, in Britain at first, later in the US United States, but also in the British colonies in general. And indeed, uh, in uh, 1900, archery was included in the Paris Olympics. However, by then, he had lost some of its allure with the um, middle class, which was already looking into more fashionable sports for the time, which were tennis, croquet, cricket, those kind of entertainment. So while it was part of the Olympic program in Paris in 1900, and for the following four Olympics, it was not anymore part of the Olympic program in 1924. But the good news for archery was that in that same decade, so the 20s, uh, where like people started being interested in archery as a recreational activity, archery was getting interest by another type of individuals, which was engineers, creating efficient, energy-efficient bows that could shoot arrows faster, more efficiently, more accurately. Interest for many engineers in academic circles and therefore it becomes kind of an you know academic topic now to create the perfect bow. And that led to, to a revival of the archery as a, a sports activity, in so much that in 1931, in Lwów, uh, Poland, which is now Lviv, Lviv in Ukraine, the Fédération Internationale de Tir à l'Arc was funded by France, which gave it its French name, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Poland, United States, Hungary, and Italy. It was called uh, FITA, so Federal Sentinel de Tiralac, but the name was changed later on, but quite recently, to Board Archery. Now it has an English name, a cooler name, something that is easily identifiable as the Archery Federation. Um, but by then, like for most of its life, it was known as the FITA. By the time, in 31, archery was not any longer an Olympic sport, but since 1931, the FITA started to organize regular World Archery Championships. And indeed, we had like World Archery Championship interrupted only by the Second World War every year, and then by COVID um, more recently, but they were quite regular since then. 
the federation uh, created more and more events globally. And finally, they were able to convince the International Olympic Committee to readmit archery among the Olympic sports. And that happened in 1972 in Munich with both women and men individual events being held in Munich. Um, only in 1988, as the Seoul Olympics, the team events were introduced. And in Tokyo, we're going to have for the first time a team mixed event. So we went from two events in 72 to five events at this year Olympics. As most Olympic sports, archery at the Olympics is a subset of a wide typologies of archery. In particular, what we see at the Olympics is target outdoor archery. Target archery as opposed to field archery, which is done in the woods or like in like outside in terrain, where you hit the targets of different sides, different distance. Whereas target archery is at a fixed distance, fixed target, and with a standing archer. And obviously outdoor to uh, differentiated from indoor, where usually this distance is less, and also be uh, obviously outdoor, you need to take into account the wind when there is wind. And the other differentiation within archery is the type of bow employed by the archer. Now, the two most common are recurve and compound. At towards archery championship, both competitions are held, both recurve and compound. And there's people that think that compound is actually the one that makes more sense because it's. Um, uh, it's more widespread around the world. However, the recurve bow is the one used in Olympic competition. Now, a recurve bow is like a bow with limbs that curve away from the archer when the arrow is unstrung. And that, that the kind of uh, shape makes uh, the bow stores more energy and like makes the delivery of the arrow more efficient than like a straight limbed bow. However, compound bows are actually more advanced. Uh, they were introduced uh, more recently, and they are based on a system of cables and pulleys, something much more engineered, which is more energy efficient and improves accuracy, which means that if you're starting with archery, you're probably going to use a compound type of bar, a bow, simply because it makes your life easier. So yeah, there's always been like back and forth uh, between World Archery and the Olympic Committee because obviously Recurve is the bow with more history traditionally, but Compound will probably make the sport more accessible also to uh, more countries. So, But so far, they weren't successful in also promoting Compound Archery to the Olympics. And therefore, what you look when you watch an Olympic event is Recurve Archery target outdoor. <laughs> so how does the competition work? Well, we have a target, which is a 70 meters distance from the shooter or the archer. And the target, you've probably seen it, uh, uh, you know, in real life is like 10 concentric circles with a smaller tackle in the middle, typically red, which yield a score of 10. And then as you go outside from the mid to the outside, it goes to nine, eight, seven, and the farther you go from the center until you reach one and then zero if you don't even hit the target. Now, an average score is nine, and 10 is not uh, a rare score in Olympic competition. Like, um, I mean, Olympic archers eat tens quite regularly. So a score lower than nine is not a good one, and definitely a score below eight is a bad one, for sure, at, at this level. 
The competition format in archery is typically a knockout bracket, like a tennis bracket, uh, usually with 128, at least at the Olympic is 128 athletes to start. And uh, that means that, you know, there's a first round, a second round, and then you go to last 16, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. If you lose the semifinals at the Olympics, you, pay, you play for the bronze medal. Now, how the archers are seeded is quite interesting because the very first individual event at an Olympics is the seeding round in archery. And this happens historically, well, traditionally, let's say, on the day of the opening ceremony. So it's probably the only event that happens on the day of the opening ceremony, apart from the opening ceremony, so on the Friday. So it's like an event that I follow quite uh, closely because like, it's first real action. We get like uh, football matches and this year we're going to get softball matches before then. But really, when you see the seeding round, it's, you know, where the Olympics are really starting. Um, in the seeding round, all athletes shoot 72 arrows. And the score that they make, obviously, if it all tends is 720, but nobody has ever done that. Different archers are scored from 1 to 128, and this ranking is going to dictate how the brackets are going to work, both at individual level and at team level. So team levels, they aggregate the scores of the individuals that compose the team, which is a team of three archers, and then they also seed the teams from 1 to 12 at the Olympics, because we have 12 teams, and then the first four teams receive a bye, whereas the from 5 to 12, they play the last 16, then quarterfinal, semifinal, to final. Now, this year, we're also going to have the mixed team event. There's still some uncertainty how it's going to work, but uh, for sure, they're going to sum like uh, the score of the best individual uh, of each country and then seed, once again, the teams. And that's the, the way they set up the bracket. But how does the actual competition work? Meaning, how do they score? So... Every um, match is at the best of five sets. And in each set, each archer shoots three arrows alternating with each other, having 30 seconds to shoot. So when you see archer hesitate to unstring the bow immediately and they take long, they are increasingly under more pressure and at times they just need to let it go and you see them make huge mistakes. And that's all mental, obviously. Uh, because obviously a good archer shouldn't hesitate much <laughs> while releasing it. Sometimes they hold it a bit more because of the wind or because of vibration they're feeling, but it's crucial that they do it in a reasonable time because if they start being under time pressure, it's very difficult and you see at times errant shots, even like a high-level competition. Um, so each set, as I said, is three arrows each and you sum the scores of these three arrows and the higher score wins. And if you win a set, it's two points. However, there might be a case when you the set, the, the set is tied because it's uh, obviously something that can happen that with three arrows you get the same score. Uh, you can get 30-30, you can get 28-28, uh, whatever it is. If that happens, it's one point each. Now, the first archer to six points wins the match, which means basically if you win the first three sets without any tie, you win 6-0 and you advance. Uh, any other score is possible, including 5-5. Five, five. Uh, for example, if they draw all the five sets, which is quite unlikely, but also if they uh, 
one, athlete, one archer wins two sets, the other wins two sets, and they tie one set, then the score is going to be 5-5. Five, five. So what do they do in that case? They shoot one single arrow and just imagine the pressure. And the closer to the center means they can both score at 10, or they can both score at 3. It doesn't matter, just distance from the center. So that kind of high-pressure situation to be in. The team events work very similarly, but instead of shooting three arrows per set, each team shoot two arrows. So a total of six arrows as there are three archers for team. And then again, you sum the score, you see who's in front at the end of the set. Um, and team competition are one of the most intense Olympic events, in my opinion. Uh, any team can win on a good day. They can go on a run and win gold or go to medal. And luck obviously plays quite an important important component because it's not just up to you. Maybe you get an opponent which is much better than you but is particularly nervous or just not in good shape that day and you advance. So it's down to luck, it's down to how you deliver under pressure and this is more evident in the team competition than in the individual competition uh, because obviously when there's a team dynamics uh, everything is more volatile. So in terms of venues, so I already spoke about, a bit about the calendar, really um, the way it works is that um, on Friday, first Friday of the Olympics, you have the seeding round, then Saturday, Sunday, Monday of the first week, you have uh, all the team events, mixed women and men, where they do all the, each day a single bracket. So women's team play from the last 16 to the final in that day. Men's event the same and mixed team event the same. Then for the first week of the Olympics, they play the first and second round of the individual events. And then Friday and Saturday, they play the individual men's and women event. And similar to team event, they basically have like, they start from the last 16 and they go to the final. It's quite interesting because like if you, it's difficult to track because it's all day event for the entire first week of the Olympics. So clearly you are not able to watch all of them. You probably watch the ones that are more of interest to you. And then you obviously, uh, when they get to semifinals or quarterfinals, when the pressure is on, you might want to watch all of them because it's quite fun. The venues, now historically, archery venues are among the best. They're kind of defining for an Olympic uh, city where they're going to hold the archery events. Uh, we had the Sambodromo in Rio, we had the Lord's Cricket Ground in London, and we had the Panathinaikos Stadium in Athens, which is basically an original <laughs> Olympic stadium made entirely out of marble. So quite a scenic views usually. Now in Tokyo, it's a bit disappointing. They, it's going to be located in Yumenoshima Park, which is in the newer area of Tokyo between the Rainbow Bridge and Disney World, really. Disneyland, Disney World is in Orlando. So I'm not looking that much forward to the location as I'm used to uh, for archery events, but um, it is what it is. Then, yeah, a few words on the qualification process because it's still ongoing. Now, most of the bids were allocated at 2019 World Archery Championship, which were held in Sertengenbosch, Netherlands. And there are 8 out of the 11 teams qualified, plus Japan, you get to 12, which means there are still 3 teams to be qualified. And those 3 teams will be decided in June in Paris. That's going to be quite a crucial event. It is literally a preliminary round for the Olympics. Why is that important? 
Well, first of all, because there are many good countries which have failed to qualify their teams yet. Uh, among women, France, Italy, Japan, and India have not qualified their teams. And among men, France, Italy, Netherlands, and Malaysia have not qualified their team. Those are quite important countries. And why that is important? Because if you don't qualify the te your team, you basically can qualify only one individual. The only way you can qualify multiple individual, no matter how good they are, is by qualifying the team. If you qualify the team, you have the right of three bids, so three archers by the country competing at the Olympics. If not, then they need to qualify individually, but no more than one. So it is key, because like if a key uh, country like Italy or like France does not qualify, that's not just the team that doesn't qualify, but it's two good archers that don't make it. It's just going to be one for those good countries. So quite crucial. Now, the mixed team is a new event. And the way they set it up is basically if you qualify both a man and a woman, you're automatically qualified for the mixed team event. And it doesn't really matter how you qualify one man and one woman. The important thing is that you do. And it's, we get like into quite complicated stuff on how the whole qualification works. But as I said, world championships are crucial. But then there are like continental games, like the Pan-American games, the, the European games, the Asian games. There were also qualifying events for, this, uh, for the Olympics. Uh, there are continental quarters. There are Olympic qualification tournaments, like the one we're going to see in Paris. Um, and that is a quite complicated system of reallocation of quota based on many geographical and geopolitical, if you want, factors. So it's quite a mess. But no matter how, if you qualify a man and a woman, you're going to be qualified for the mixed team event, which means we're going to have many countries that don't have their teams qualified, like men or women, but they're going to have a mixed team. And I think that's quite uh, important because like, it gives more opportunities to more countries because it's only 12 countries for each gender to qualify a team, whereas we're going to have more of them to qualify a mixed team. Therefore, I cannot stress how important it is, the qualifiers in Paris. I think they're more in important than seeding round, probably more important than the first rounds in the individual events. Like, it's already real Olympic competition. And it's going to be end of June in Paris, so also quite close to the actual start of the Olympics, which is end of July. Now, what are the traditionally strong countries? Now, archery, as you might have guessed from me uh, mentioning some of the teams, is a truly global sport. It has an important presence in all continents, with the exception of Africa, where maybe Egypt as a bit of Tunisia, like Northern Africa, where there was some a kind of uh, British influence. Uh, South Africa a bit, but in general, it's not very well de developed. In Olympic history, the country with more medals is Korea. And Korea, for example, has swept all the gold medals at Rio. And they are a country which you expect to do it on a regular basis, but then it seldom actually happens that they win all of the competition because it's quite a volatile event. It's a knockout stage, right? It's like you need to go win all your matches and like anything can happen so it's difficult for them to win all of the events it happened in Rio probably won't happen in Tokyo and indeed for example case in point uh, the last uh, world championship 2019 the women's team that won was not Korea it was China and in 2017 the men's team that won it was Italy it was not Korea 
So don't look at this and say, oh, Korea will dominate and it's going to be boring. Not at all. Not at all. And Korea for sure have the best archers in the world. They have the best school in the world. And like um, uh, when you look uh, archery events, you see that the coaches, they're mostly Korean. <laughs> of, all, of all the national teams, they usually hire either a Korean coach or a Korean consultant because it's the best archery school in the world by far. Second on the list of countries with most medals is the United States, which is another powerhouse, although they are actually a bit better in compound than they are on recurve. And then we have Italy, China, Soviet Union, Russia. Those are historically the best ones. Then we have other countries with good tradition, like uh, France, Germany, Netherlands, and Spain in Europe, Mexico and Colombia in America. Many Asian countries have quite a tradition in archery, like China, Chinese Taipei, Japan, India, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Indonesia. Most of those are like British colonial remnants. It's quite interesting uh, that the British themselves only have one bronze medal at the Olympics since 1972, whereas the rest of the Commonwealth does much better. Uh, so you see, quite a global sport. It's a sport where the underdogs can win, and they do win, and they come from countries which otherwise have no shot at Olympic glory. I mean, those countries that I mentioned, India, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Indonesia, they are not competitive in many sports. Maybe uh, badminton is another sport where those kind of um, southern eastern Asian countries can actually win medals. Therefore, it's kind of, to me, it makes it very appealing when a sport is truly global and you can have underrepresented countries competing with bigger powerhouses. And that's why I think archery is an essential part of the Olympic program. It's one of the sports that I look forward the most. And since like uh, most of the action is concentrated in the first weekend, it's like it's really what starts in the morning. It's like waking up Saturday morning, watching archery. It's like like that. The Olympics are, are starting, and it's going to be uh, quite a ride for the next few weeks. So yeah, I, I hope I. Again, you're interested in, in archery. As I said, maybe explaining how it works is much more boring than actually watching. I think it's like highly entertaining, even as a neutral. But like if you're invested in the teams, it's a lot of fun. And one of my fondest memories from the Olympics is seeing the uh, Italy winning the teams event in, in London 2012 uh, against uh, the United States in the final at the last arrow. It's uh, it's really fascinating. So I I hope you, you you give it a shot, and no pun intended there. So yeah, that concludes our first episode. I won't spoiler what's going to be the next sport we're going to look at, but you'll see. Thanks for uh, listening.